0: Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com, westchestercfc.com. Well, this morning's reading occurs earlier than the one that we read last week. Luke chapter 23, this is... Of course, the second word from the cross. This is just after Jesus has prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And out of everything that Jesus says on the cross, this is the longest sentence of all of his dying words. And as we hear these words this morning, it is my hope and desire that we may feel them as much as we hear them and as much as we process them in our minds. Luke chapter 23 in um, the 35th verse. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him saying, this is the king of the Jews. Well, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The scriptures are an entire world of beauty within itself. I mean, it it is an absolute world of beauty, but... As we have discovered in our reading, some passages are nothing but a rock in that world. Other passages are an ant or a blade of grass swaying by the riverside. And yet, what we just heard, I mean, this, as well as all of the other sayings that Jesus utters while on the cross, this is the Grand Canyon of the Scriptures. This is one of the wonders of the world of the words of God: this impassioned plea from below, and this impassioned response from above. And, and you know, the only problem with this is is that for so many of us, especially in churches of Christ, we have such a complicated relationship with this passage. Now for many other people, this is nothing but a proof text that people use in order to downplay our need for baptism. We've all heard people say, well, the thief on the cross never needed to be baptized, so why should we? And all of that. And yet for other people, though, this this beautiful moment, though, is not a moment, it's something that we need to kind of debunk we have to, you know, a lot of people just more or less unintentionally ignore this conversation that unfolds on the cross. I think for a lot of us, we may as well just grab a red marker and just draw a huge X right through it. Because after all, people argue about the thief on the cross every single day. And I think that for at least... A few of us, maybe if someone even says the criminal on the cross, our blood pressure begins to boil. We, we have a lump in our throats because we feel like at any moment this, this highly volatile argument is about to break out. And I had such a complicated relationship with this passage that in 22 years of preaching, I mean, I preached almost a thousand sermons in 22 years. And yet only two of those sermons were about what I just read. And the last time that I I spoke about the criminal on the cross was at least a decade ago. (laughs) And back then, in both instances that I spoke about the criminal on the cross, the only way that I thought that I was allowed to ever approach this passage was some angry and defensive message about why we need to be baptized. And we do need to be baptized. And yet I made the whole thing about, you know, the title of the message was You Can't Be Saved Like the Thief on the Cross. And I'm going to give you five reasons why we're right and why the Baptists are wrong. And and I went to Hebrews 9 and I explained how the New Covenant had not yet gone into effect and all of that. And and yet I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm not, going, you know, as, as important and as necessary as baptism is, I'm not going to preach baptism this morning. I'm going to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to stand at the foot of the cross. I'm going to remove the sandals from my feet. I'm going to look up at what's going on in the cross. I'm going to ask, what does this mean? And I want us to be enchanted by the moment that unfolds before our eyes. Because when we do this, when when we stand at the cross and we ask these questions and we intently watch what is happening there, what we notice is that, wait a minute, this is not a proof text. It's the extravagant love of God. This isn't a talking point. It's the kingdom of heaven. This is not about proving others as either right or as wrong, but rather this is about Jesus being lifted up on the cross and making a very wrong humanity right in His presence. So as we see, as, as we look up together at the cross, what do we see? We see three men condemned to die on three crosses. And yet only two of them were criminals though. Now, as for these other two men who Jesus is crucified with, we'll never know what their names were. Maybe it was Mendel and Benjamin, maybe it was Levi and Yeshua, but we don't know what their names were. Or rather, the only identifications that we are given to their identities is, as Luke says three times in the text, he refers to them both as the criminals. Other translations may refer to them as the robbers, but 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 I mean this is all that they were in in the eyes of their society. They were criminals and they were robbers. And the signposts nailed above all of them broadcasted what their crimes were. And yet, even though they are referred to as criminals and as robbers, this you know what we need to understand is that this was not a case of um, a petty theft. In other words, these two men are not being crucified because they stole a loaf of bread or anything minor like that. But rather, all three are under the exact same condemnation which officially in the eyes of the law was rebelling against Roman authority. Now, even though the accusations against Jesus were slanderous and not true, you know, the most damning accusation that his accusers were able to come up with was that, hey, Roman people, this guy is making himself out to be a king, and he's challenging Caesar. That's really the only thing that got their attention, because if they said, well, he is blaspheming the law of Moses, that, you know, just shrug and, you know, who cares about that in their eyes, but if they accuse him of making himself out to be a challenger of Caesar, well, that you know, that got their attention. And yet for these other two men, though, what was going on, especially in the case of, of another criminal we know whose name had been Barabbas, what would happen many times is that many people of this nature would, would actually wait out on the highway. And as Oftentimes, wealthy passengers walk by, if they viewed them as being sympathizers of Roman rule, a lot of times they would be viciously attacked and robbed of all of their belongings and money. And yet they would also strategize revolts against Roman occupation. And so, yes, these two men are robbers and they're crooks, but but mostly we need to understand they're rebels and revolutionaries. I mean, make no mistake about it, these two men have done horrible, barbaric, unspeakable things. Things that have tortured their mothers with grief every single night. And yet as violent as their darkness was, notice in the text though, that that by far, undoubtedly, the loudest, most pervasive darkness at all, is not seen in them, but it's seen in the religious leaders. These so-called religious experts who, who keep marching back and forth at the foot of Jesus' cross. And they're wagging their heads at Jesus, and, and they keep screaming and, and heaping verbal abuse upon this dying man who did nothing wrong in his life. And what are they saying to Jesus? You said that you were going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days? I mean, this guy can't even save himself. Can you? Another walks up to the cross and says, Oh, I'm sorry, where's my manners, everybody? This is the king of the Jews. You are our Messiah, aren't you? Mr. King of kings and Lord of lords, this guy who said that he was God's son. Well, look at him now. Look at him. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, what's the matter? Is God not rescuing you? Yeah, you're the son of God, all right. God doesn't even care about you. If he did, he would pull you off of that cross. And then a Pharisee walks up and he says, you know, if you're such a powerful king, then why don't you come down from there and then we will worship you. I mean, this is just so satanic. They think that they're religious experts. They think that they have perfected, you know, God and his word, but but they are so utterly satanic. And the reason why I use a word of that caliber is because yesterday Satan was speaking through Simon Peter in one particular moment. Just just one person. And yet this morning, notice how at the cross there are devils everywhere you look. And all of these Satans and devils are all speaking over the other, shouting more loudly than the one next to them. I mean, you remember the wilderness as Jesus is baptized and Satan is is heaping um, all kinds of temptations on him. But can you remember that the word that he keeps going to with Jesus is the word of doubt, is the word if. Satan says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And if you are the Son of God, jump up on the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself down and prove it to us. And now at Golgotha, what do we keep on hearing again and again and again? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And if you are the Son of God, save yourself. I mean, it was difficult enough resisting that temptation of turning stones in the bread. But now all of these people are speaking, and Satan is speaking to Jesus through them, and he's trying to tempt Jesus to to not die for our sins. I mean, this is the ultimate temptation right here. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. I mean, this is the power of Satan in the hearts of religious people. Because all Satan ever does is slander and lie and accuse. Point that finger and use the word if. And I mean, can you notice in the text the influence that this religious institution is having on people in the world? As Bob read to us a moment ago in a in 36 verse, Now the Roman soldiers begin echoing what they're saying, and they are are parroting, you know, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And yet I find it so interesting that in Matthew's Gospel, what he says is, is, as he says, the robbers crucified with Jesus also reviled him in the same way. And so as Jesus goes to the cross, literally both of these criminals are echoing what what the religious leaders are saying, and they they are heaping verbal abuse upon Jesus. And in this we see the venom of groupthink, and how easy it is to be swept away in the undercurrent of the angry mob. The mob is so demonic, isn't it? And yet we also have to be reminded, though, still the same, I mean, as we see all of this sin and and corruption and wickedness at the cross in the hearts of men, you know, it really doesn't matter if it's these criminals, if it's Barabbas, if it's these religious leaders, or if it's me or if it's you. I mean, we have all done horrible, unspeakable things to other people. We have all violently reveled in the darkness. Every single one of us has slandered and murdered others with our speech. We've committed adultery in our hearts, whether spiritual or marital or however it looks as human beings. This this is something that Jesus speaks to that, that we've all done in some degree. And along with these criminals, the signposts above us before Jesus came to earth and went to the cross... I mean, our sins far too numerous to confine to a, you know a signpost, but but the most succinct word is what is criminal. It's a word which means evildoer. It's saying to the world, this is the transgressor. And as Jesus goes to that cross, it just appears. It's not literally so as we're going to see later, but it appears as if the whole world is, is wagging their, their heads at Jesus, assaulting Him with their speech. And I mean, after all, the cross, as the Apostle Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing, isn't it? And these criminals are perishing right now, in more than one sense. And yet it, it is so amazing, though, That for at least one of these criminals, though, something changes. I don't know how to adequately describe what is happening. But one of these men who seems to be railing abuse on Jesus, maybe to a lesser extent than the other, he has a change of heart. He pulls back with his jeering. He goes silent for a moment and then he turns and he rebukes the other prisoner wherever he happened to be situated. And he says, do you not fear God? You and I are guilty as charged. Listen, we are getting exactly what we deserve. And yet this homeless rabbi over here who you keep swearing at, who you keep cursing out, he's done nothing wrong listen, we have done our very worst and we're going to die for that. And yet he has done his very best. And it is then where this criminal gives voice to one of our greatest needs as human beings. Now, as you might imagine, as a minister and as as a son of a minister, I have sat in countless hospital rooms in my life. I have sat by the beds of many hospice halls. And I've been around a lot of people as they died. And with very few exceptions, it has been my experience that in these moments as people are literally saying their dying words, people don't use waning energy and their final words on small things. You understand what I mean by that? They're not sitting around arguing and predicting who's going to win some college football game. Or who's going to win an election or who's going to win American Idol. But rather they're talking about big things. They're talking about eternal things. They want to talk about Jesus, about forgiveness, about the grace of God, about heaven. The father who never once told his son, I love you, and many times in these moments looks intensely into the eyes of his son and says, Son, I love you. In these moments they send for other people who they may have wronged or had wronged them, and, and they squeeze their hand and they say, I'm so sorry. Or they say, I forgive you and, and I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. And I mean, as this man whose name we'll never know dies next to Jesus, his very human wish is what? He wants to be remembered. And he wants to be remembered by God. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, he says, Remember me. And what I love so much about this man is that unlike others who knew Jesus intimately, He doesn't want a seat of honor in his kingdom. He isn't trying to coerce Jesus into giving him some lofty and elevated position above others. He doesn't demand a mansion, a robe, or a crown that he thinks Jesus owes him. He doesn't even say, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, let me on in. Rather, he just says, Jesus, I just want you to remember me. I mean, this is such a human need for us to be remembered and for us to be known. I couldn't believe this as I heard it, but a lot of you know the name Pat Riley. Pat Riley was, was of course, the, um, a coach of um, Showtime Lakers in the 1980s. He had those Armani suits and the slick back hair, and he was all over magazines and on television screens constantly one of the greatest coaches in all of sports. And yet I was listening to a radio show a few years ago, and and a host of that radio show had a daughter, a very young daughter, about 9 or 10 years old, and they happened to meet Pat Riley. And he was absolutely amazed that he got to meet Pat Riley, but then his very young daughter looked at him and said, Hey, who was that creepy old guy who was speaking to us? <laughs> I mean, it just shows how fleeting it is, you know, who we are in this world. I mean, if you don't believe that you are a forgettable phase, I mean, just go back to your high school and walk your high school campus and see how many people call out to you and remember your name. You know, I did that about maybe three or four years ago in Nobody knew who I was. <laughs> Everybody had changed. Everybody graduated and retired. And it happens so fast, doesn't it? At a congregation, I was once at in Florida. There was a minister, or a man who used to be a minister at that church many years ago in the early 90s. He came as a visitor, and I mean, nobody but me knew who he was. And sure enough, you know, if I were to come back here, you know, like 40 or 50 years, and to walk inside our auditorium, I don't think anybody's going to even recognize me. It's just like, who's, you know, who's that creepy old guy in the back? <laughs> I mean, we are so forgettable to other people. And those old um, black and whites of our great great grandparents can't, you know, can we even name? One of our great great grandparents by name. I mean, I have no idea who they were. I don't know their names. And yet as this criminal speaks to Jesus. I mean, I mean, do you know what absolutely astounds me, though? What absolutely amazes me is that this criminal gets it. You know, in the Gospels, whenever Jesus speaks about his kingdom or or about the kingdom of God. Nobody understood what it actually was. Not the twelve disciples, not the um, individuals on the road to Emmaus, not even Jesus' own mother understood what he meant by that. And I mean, when Jesus died, everybody saw the kingdom of heaven as this failed experiment. And as Jesus as a failed messiah. It was summed up best of all by one of those travelers on the road to Emmaus who says in Luke chapter 24 that, that we had hoped, you know, in the past tense, we had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. But I guess he, you know, he wasn't. It was that close. And so that was what um, a perception was of of the kingdom of heaven. But but notice though, somehow, in some way, out of everybody in all of Jerusalem, it's this violent criminal robber, he is the one who seems to understand the best. He's saying to Jesus, don't remember all of the horrible things that I've done. Don't remember all of the people who I heard and who I stole from. Don't even remember me as the criminal, as all of of history and time undoubtedly will. But rather he says, Jesus, just remember me, my face, my voice, and, and remember this moment that we're having right now. Those were his dying words. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And last of all, this morning, we see the divine response. And, and it is a divine response, isn't it? Whereas he says, Jesus, come into your, or when you come into your kingdom, remember me, Jesus says, well, in our text, we know it by, by um, a different word. Right there in the text, he says, truly, truly. And yet, did you know, though, what this word really means in the original language? As Jesus responds to his wish and to his desire, this is the word for Amen. I wish so bad that this was the word in our Bibles instead of that. Where Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me, and Jesus said, Amen. Remember you in my kingdom, Amen. Amen. Let it be so, Jesus says. And then he says, I say to you, yes, you, even you, this this guy whose name and identity has become the criminal. He says that I say to you that here today, you know, not 10 million years from now, not at the end of the ages, but today, you, you know, he says that you will. You don't have to cross your, your fingers or, or rub a lucky rabbit's foot. It's not a matter of, of if or somehow, but, but this is a matter of when. He's telling this, this man that this is going to happen. That you will be with me. Jesus says, I'm going to do so much more than just remember your face. But rather, you are coming with me. And for all of eternity, where you'll be, there I will be. And where I will be, there you will be right next to my side. And where we will be, Jesus says, is in paradise. It's a word that means a garden. And the moment that I I read that, I thought of Mary Ann. I remember speaking to her about her garden and how she said that God's presence and and the idea of heaven is just so much closer to her when she's there, and and that is not a coincidence. Whenever we see this word paradise in the scriptures, this you know this is a comfort that Jesus speaks of in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus dies and the angels, you know, with with a great degree of tranquility. They carry his soul to Abraham's side. It's the indescribable veil that the Apostle Paul glimpsed through that he refers to as God's paradise in 2 Corinthians. It's a place where, where Jesus speaks of in the book of Revelation, where all of those who overcome are going to dwell and inhabit in perfect peace. And so to the Jewish world, this this word of, um, that I will be, or that rather you will be with me in paradise. It's the idea of being in this realm of absolute peace. And it cannot and it will not be interrupted by any troubles or any sickness or even a devil anymore. It's a place of absolute comfort that is too ethereal and too heavenly for words. It is a peace that is so... Impossible that it obliterates the human imagination. And yet, the most powerful thing about this, this whole response Jesus makes, and the reason why I I had saved this, this specific passage for, for um, us this morning, is because as Jesus and this criminal dies, notice that they're speaking of themselves not in the past tense. But in the future tense, as the criminal speaks to Jesus, he's saying, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom one day, remember me there on that day. Jesus is showing him that even though, yes, even though we we are about to die right now, this is not the end. And as you know, whenever anybody around Jesus ever died, he he never says, well, they just died, but he always says they fell asleep. And those who fall asleep soon are going to awaken. And if his future with Jesus is to be paradise, then what this means is that also even his own presence is paradise as well even as he stomps through hell by a death on the cross. As as our songbooks say, anywhere with Jesus I can go to sleep. When the darkening shadows round about me creep, knowing I shall waken nevermore to roam. And yet as long as I'm with Jesus, anywhere with him is home, sweet home. Anywhere, anywhere, fear I cannot know, anywhere with Jesus I can safely go. And so yes, Jesus is dying for the sins of the world and he's defeating Satan. But, but as we are in celebration this morning and all the days of our life, on that third day, on that third morning, the sun arose. And as the sun arose, the sun arose. And as a stone was rolled away, Jesus defeated death and removed its sting from our souls. And it's interesting that when Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected of, in all places, a garden. Mary Magdalene thought that he was the gardener. (laughs) And yet he's so much more than that, isn't he? He is the risen Savior whose spirit within us makes life on this earth a paradise and yet who especially is going to one day bring us into his paradise just as he brought this thief on the cross into his paradise and yet as for this other criminal who was jeering Jesus the you know the last that we ever hear of him was him taunting and cursing Jesus as far as we know those were his dying words and yet, for this other man, though, what a beautiful departure. I mean, not even King Herod could get a word out of Jesus. A Roman governor barely, barely did. And yet, this convicted felon criminal moved Jesus to one of his final and most beautiful responses before he died. And to everybody else, he's nothing but a. You know, a condemned criminal. And yet to Jesus, he is a blessed and a faithful son. We may say, you know, despite everything that guy did, and Jesus said, Amen. Even though he beat other people to a pulp and he stole from them, and Jesus said, Amen. Even though all he ever brought on his mother and father was, was you know, just absolute dishonor and disgrace, and Jesus said, Amen. Even though he was just cursing him out ten minutes ago, and Jesus said, Amen. And now for all of us living on this other side of, of the cross in the age of the new covenant and the empty tomb. well, we've got an even more powerful union with Jesus than this criminal had. So we close this morning in Romans chapter 6, and this is our gospel invitation. As the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, he's writing to a whole bunch of people just like us. People who have done horrible, unspeakable things. Things that grieve God to his heart every day, every night. And yet God in His infinite love and in His infinite mercy. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? For all of those who meet Jesus at the waters, they stand on a cross with Jesus, and they are united in his death. And all of those who meet Jesus at the waters of baptism are also united with Jesus in his resurrection. As he says in verse 4, that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Somebody might say, after all of the horrible things she has done, after all of the horrible inexcusable things that, that I have done and each and every time what the response is to that statement is and Jesus said amen and Jesus said amen you know, the cross and the empty tomb is foolishness to those who are perishing and yet to those of us being rescued though It is the power of God to salvation to all who believe.